0: Life that we live through on a regular basis is filled with things that cause us to exercise great care in what we're doing. As most of you know, I grew up on a farm. My children used to give me a hard time that I told too many sheep stories, so I don't always tell sheep stories, but I remember feeding our sheep in high school that I would have to carry a bucket of oats out in the winter and dump it into a trough. And yeah, I learned to exercise great care coming into the pen, trying to do so quietly, because if the sheep saw I was there, they flooded the pen, and, and I would have to push myself between the sheep to even get close, and they'd be standing in the pen, and there'd be heads in the way, and there was no way to dump the oats in the trough. So I tried to sneak in quietly, carefully. In, in my wife's world as a nurse, she says that they have to have great care in giving drugs, She tells me one of the first things they learn in nursing school is what they called the, the five R's. You had to have the right patient, the right drug, the right dose, the right route, and the right time. I think we're all grateful that they learned those five R's because we know that there needs to be great caution when it comes to administering drugs. When our children were little we would take great care of putting them down in the crib after we'd rocked them for a long time and they're finally asleep. The last thing you'd want to do is jostle them and have that screaming start up again. Great caution was required. As I said, our, our lives are filled with these kinds of situations where we, we need great care, great caution. That's true in our Christian life as in all other aspects of life as well. Peter is wrapping up his letter that we've been considering now for the past several months. As we've seen the people that he wrote this letter to, these are people who are suffering for their faith in Christ. These are believers who are scattered throughout the region that we would call Asia Minor now. They, they're there and suffering under a degree of persecution that was somewhat varied, but it was increasing. There was Expectation that it could even rise to the level of having give their lives because of their faith. Throughout this letter, Peter's called on them to accept what God has brought into their lives as good. Even their suffering they are to accept as good. They're there to accept their suffering in the same way that their Savior accepted his suffering. He is their model. Uh, Along with accepting the suffering that they were facing, Peter has called them to continue doing what is right, to continue living in obedience to Christ, even if living in obedience to Christ increases the suffering. Uh, Of course, the, the same expectation applies to us. We have the same Savior as Peter's original readers had. Our Savior responded to his suffering with steadfast endurance and acceptance and he continued to do his father's will as as he suffered for it and we should do the same the the admonitions and the exhortations that we've seen in this letter they apply just as much to us as they did to the first century christians that, that peter sent the letter to originally this morning we're looking at, at the final verses of the body of peter's letter this really is the conclusion of of his thoughts he And as he wraps up his thoughts, he he summarizes his main points that he's been making throughout. That's often the way that we conclude a long dissertation or a letter. We we hit the final points, the, the highlights one last time. And that's what Peter's doing. And as he does so, the main idea that flows out of the verses we're looking at this morning is that care is required to live as Christians within a world of suffering care is required to live as christians within a world of suffering this world is broken by sin pain and hardship abound yet this is the world in which god calls us to live out our christian lives in a way that would magnify our savior we we say our goal is to joyfully magnify christ well we have to joyfully magnify christ even when we're within this world of suffering the the task is not easy it's not simple. Within these concluding verses, Peter gives us four things that we must practice as Christians. Four things that we must practice if we're going to live with the care that God expects from us. Care is required to live as Christians within a world of suffering. Let's read these verses. 1 Peter chapter 5, picking up in verse 8. Peter writes, Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him, Be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Care is required to live as Christians within a world of suffering. The the first thing that we must practice so that we'll have the care that's required is found here in verse 8. We must first of all practice Christian vigilance. We must practice Christian vigilance. Vigilance means to, to keep on the lookout for danger or t- for difficulties. It, vigilance describes how we watch out when we are placing our feet on places that might be icy. We're walking across the parking lot here and there's a little layer of snow. And we know that under that snow there could be spots that have frozen over of ice. So we step carefully. We have vigilance. Vigilance describes the, the slight smirk that we're looking for. We vigilantly look for a slight smirk on our child's face when we know they're pretending to be asleep. They're not really asleep. They're trying to surprise us when we turn our back. So with vigilance, we look for that giveaway. Vigilance describes how we conduct ourselves all day long as Christians, because the great enemy of our faith is nearby, trying to destroy us. If we fail to spot his approach near the the beginning of the letter back in chapter 1 verse 13 peter told us to remain sober to, to be ready for action be because what we experience day in and day out is this is not our ultimate reality we are to be sober because christ is returning we're to focus on that rather than the current trials he used the idea of soberness again in First Peter chapter 4, verse 7. And now as he concludes his letter for a third time, he tells us to be sober. He adds in that not only are we to be sober, we're to remain on the alert. In other words, we are to keep our eyes open for trouble. We, we don't have the luxury of letting our guard down because we know that trouble is all around us. I'm sure that we all understand that that drinking is a dereliction of duty for soldiers. When when they become drunk when they're on duty, that's a dereliction of duty that, that can bring great reprimands to them. Now, I don't advocate drinking at any time, but it is one of the most serious offenses that a soldier can make if he drinks and becomes drunk while he is on lookout duty. It's the most serious offense because the lookout is responsible for the operational safety of the mission. The lookout is responsible for the the security of the rest of the squad. He or she, the one on lookout, is expected to spot the danger and to warn others. Sobriety is required. Friends, one of the things that the world of suffering all around us should remind us of is the fact that we are surrounded by danger. We're in hostile territory. It is not simply situational danger. By situational danger, that that's like you know when you walk up to a door and, and there's snow on the roof above and you, you might have to spot that that snow could slide down and nail me as I'm going to the door. That's situational danger, and, and we need to be on lookout for that. But no, this is the malevolent kind of danger. The enemy is out to harm us. This is the... the the person with the snowball behind the tree that's waiting for us to get to the door so our back is turned so that we can take a snowball in the back of the head kind of danger. We don't have to accidentally step in the wrong place to find ourselves in trouble. Trouble is seeking us. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour This is not a harmless, gentle picture. The the image of the devil would like nothing more than to to drink us down in one great gulp. Tear us apart. That's why he works so diligently to generate persecution against Christians all over the world. Now, there are a couple of minor clarifications that I want to make at this point. One, that the devil, as I've said before, is not omnipresent. The devil is not like God. God alone is omnipresent. That means God alone is everywhere present all the time. The devil can only be in one place at one time. But the devil does have an unnumbered amount of minions who carry out his purposes all throughout the world. We call them demons. There, there's countless demons that have given their allegiance to him and, and they serve to extend his presence through them throughout the world. So he always has someone nearby seeking to to stoke suffering and and to destroy Christians. Second, while the devil and his minions are extremely powerful, let me clarify that we do not need to fear them. They're they're a beaten foe. We, in and of ourselves, are, are weaker by far than the devil and his minions. But our Savior has already dealt the decisive blow that will be their undoing. The victory is already secure. We can overcome anything that the devil and his minions might try to throw at us through simple obedience to the Word of God. Obedience. Empowered by the Spirit of God, it always turns us into a bigger bite than the devil can swallow. All we have to do is obey. So we don't have to live in fear. But we must live in vigilance. Vigilance. We must constantly remind ourselves that we expect an attack to come. It it will come at any moment. At the very moment we drop our spiritual guard, we will face an attack. Suffering should not discourage us. Rather, suffering should remind us to review our spiritual guard towers, reassert our Christian vigilance, make sure that we're on the lookout for the enemy coming. care is required to live as Christians within a world of suffering. The first thing that we must practice to have the care that's required is Christian vigilance. We must practice Christian vigilance. Second, we must practice Christian resistance. Christian resistance. What do we do when the enemy is approaching. When we see him, when we spot that the enemy is coming, what do we do when we recognize that we have a weak spot in our spiritual defenses? What do we do when, when suffering is wearing us down? You know, in the movies, when a small defending force is about to be overrun by the enemy, we, we often see them mounting a, a surprise counterattack. Our heroes suddenly jump out from behind their defenses and they charge the enemy, blasting away. And time again, it works. Well, God doesn't call us to do anything of that sort. Look at the beginning of verse 9. The devil is prowling all around. The devil is seeking to devour us. And yet, what does Peter call us to do? But resist him. Firm in your faith. We're not called to mount a counterattack. We're simply called to not give up on our defensive efforts. We don't have to charge. But we must not yield either. We must continue our Christian resistance. So how do we do that? How do we mount Christian resistance? What is it, really, what does Christian resistance look like? How do we successfully resist temptations, persecutions, disappointments, suffering? What is the secret to resisting anything that the devil throws at us. Well, the secret, if you will, is just remaining firm in our faith. Remaining firm. It's doing what we might call ordinary Christianity. It's doing the things that God calls us to do in this book. That's all it is. It's just doing the things that God says to do. Don't do the things that God says not to do. That's what we are called on. That's resisting by being firm in our faith. It's trusting God enough to, to believe that doing what he says and not doing what he says not to do is all that he wants from us. You know, suffering causes us to think that God must want us to do something different. Suffering must mean that I'm not doing something right. Standing firm in our faith says if I'm doing what God has called me to do, and that is sufficient. This kind of Christian resistance is harder than it sounds. You know, it sounds easy. Just do what the Bible says. We want God to call us to do something heroic. We imagine that, that we would be like Peter, that when the time comes, we would be willing to draw a sword and valiantly defend our Savior against a whole band of soldiers, regardless of the fact that it would involve certain death. Our inner prayer is often, God, allow us to resist our daily suffering for Christ through some big, bold, stupendous action. Make us a hero of the faith. The problem is that God calls us to resist by by simply acknowledging that we know Jesus. When we're in a dark courtyard, cold and alone, surrounded by those who despise our Savior. Simply acknowledging that we're associated with Him. How do we prepare for Christian resistance? Well, we don't mount the resistance that we wish we could wage. We mount the resistance that God has called us to wage. We focus on Christian disciplines. Now, I know this sounds very old-fashioned, but Christian discipline means that we make church the center of our lives. We, we guard our Christian fellowship with one another. We utilize every opportunity to learn what God says in His Word. That, that means doing things like attending Sunday school and taking opportunities to meet one-on-one for Bible study with other believers, even coming back Sunday night. We need to take advantage of chances to pray together. We need to actually live our lives in, in line with the things that we know God has already told us to do and then learn what else there is. We need to be firm in our faith, trusting our God with our lives, rather than trusting our own thoughts about what makes sense. Resist being firm in your faith. Care is required to live as Christians within a world of suffering. The second thing that we must practice to have the care that is required is Christian resistance christian resistance third we must practice christian anticipation christian anticipation why are we surprised that life is hard we know we live in a sin cursed sin broken world why are we surprised that our country is hostile to christians this world crucified our savior why are we surprised that we might suffer for our faith Christ told us it was coming. Christian anticipation means that we anticipate that suffering is a real possibility simply because we carry the name Christian. In the second half of verse 9, Peter reminds the original readers that that they're not alone in their suffering. The experiences that they are experiencing, they were common throughout the whole world at that time of, of the church. Well, one thing that nearly 2,000 years of church history have taught us is that the Christian experience of suffering is a regular thing. In every generation, in every corner of the world, men and women have suffered because they are Christians. The suffering that I'm referring to goes beyond the physical trials of living in this, this world. the the physical suffering that comes as our age breaks our bodies down. It goes beyond the suffering that comes when accidents happen and diseases are diagnosed. This is suffering that comes because the world hates Jesus Christ and all that he stands for. Unless Jesus can be recreated into harmless caricature, the world hates him. Jesus is hated by rebellious mankind because Jesus reminds them that there is a creator to whom they owe their allegiance. Jesus is hated by rebellious mankind because Jesus reminds them that rebellion warrants death. All of us are sinners that deserve death, not happiness. We deserve eternal damnation because we have sinned against our creator, a holy God. Jesus reminds people that they are slaves to sin, who need a savior. We cannot do anything to save ourselves. Our sin has left us without any recourse on our own. If it were not for God who loved us and sent his own son to die in our place, there would be no possibility of salvation. But God did send his son. Jesus did die. He took our payment so that when we place our faith in him, we can have salvation. If you have never experienced that, if you do not know what I'm talking about, see me, talk to me, send me or Pastor Aaron a note this week. We'd love to share with you how you can know Jesus as Savior. But the world hates Jesus because he reminds them that they need a Savior. The world hates Jesus because he reminds them that he is Lord. They are not. Jesus reminds people of everything they hate. And we remind people of Jesus. Is any surprise that living for Jesus would generate hostility from the world? It ought not be a surprise. Remember the point that Peter's made many times in this letter. We are not to go looking for suffering, there, there, there's no reason for us to seek it out. We do not increase our spiritual status by, by suffering, we, we don't earn some grace if we suffer. In fact, Peter has warned us if we're suffering that that we need to make sure we're suffering as a byproduct of living for for Christ and not as a byproduct for sinful action on our part. At the same time, we should find suffering if it comes completely unsurprising. We should anticipate it. In my mind, this is similar to an experience I had one time when I joined Grace for an award luncheon at our hospital. We're, we're at this luncheon, and in the middle of the award ceremony, all of a sudden, a lot of pagers go off. Most of the upper management for the emergency center was, was in this luncheon, and they were in this ceremony, and, and all of a sudden, their pagers were going off. And, and after a few moments for everyone to silence their pagers, one of the, the senior administrators stepped to the mic and said, you can all ignore your pagers. The, the bad news is, All of us were just killed by a bomb. The good news is you have an extra half hour to enjoy the luncheon. She explained that that we decided to run a mass casualty drill that that would require our response teams to operate without the normal leadership available. You're all here. You're not available to them. Now, I don't think the hospital really expect a bomb to go off at some point in the middle of their building. That's not the, the point. But they do anticipate that there will come a time that they might be called on to handle a mass casualty event. And I imagine that the goal of this drill is to ensure that their processes for handling mass casualties are not dependent on any individual. That the process can stand up because the hospital might be called on at any time. And regardless of who's in the unit at that time, they must be ready to respond. Well, in a similar manner. We should anticipate that suffering could come. Suffering could come at any time because we are Christians. So, why does Peter remind us again in his closing thoughts of this point? Why does he remind us that suffering could come at any point? Because when suffering comes, there, there's something comforting in knowing that we are not alone. In in Hebrews 11, we're we're given a long list of uh, of men and women in the Bible who endured much hardship in their lives while they waited to see the fulfillment of God's promises. We live with more information than they ever have because we live on the other side of the cross. We have seen Christ come and give His life on our behalf. Yet we're still waiting for the fulfillment of God's promises. We're waiting for Christ to return in glory. We're waiting to see his victory come to his fulfillment. And while we wait, while we suffer, it's helpful to know that we are not alone. Knowing that others are standing firm, even when they suffer, can and should help us stand firmer as well. In a similar fashion, anticipating that, that suffering might come prepares us for when it does. Care is required to live as Christians within a world of suffering. The third thing that we must practice to have the care that's required is Christian anticipation. Anticipation. We must practice vigilance, Christian resistance, and Christian anticipation. And then number four, we must practice Christian confidence as well. Confidence. Peter ends... At the very place we'd expect him to end, he ends focused on God. He ends focused on what God has done and what God has promised to still do. Our Christian confidence comes from God, not from our circumstances. Our confidence comes from God, not from ourselves. It comes from God, not from our understanding. Compared to the eternal glory that is before us, the, the suffering that we might experience now, Peter says, is for a little while. That phrase, little while, it loops us all the way back to chapter 1, verse 6, where Peter began this letter, really, with the idea that, that what God has done for us is more than sufficient to give us joy, even if we suffer for a little while. We can rejoice even if we suffer for a little while after all it is the god of all grace who provided our salvation and is that same god who guarantees now our eternal glory all that we have is by god's grace grace that we sang about over and over today grace called us to christ grace calls us to eternal glory There's nothing that that can come in the here and now. There's nothing that suffering can bring that, that can touch the grace of God that calls us to eternal glory. Notice, though, as Peter even highlights this great glory, this great grace of God that focuses on eternal glory, he points out that we're not going to jump from this present suffering to eternal glory in some magical fashion. It doesn't happen by magic. He says, rather, the same God, the the God of all grace, will work within us during our present sufferings to enable us to persevere. Look there at verse 10. God will perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish us. Now, some people try to differentiate from these four verbs that, that we've seen that Peter's using to describe the things that God has promised to us, but I don't think we need distinguish great differences between these verbs rather i think peter is simply stacking these up to to emphasize his point the point he wants to make sure we understand god alone will ensure that every believer will endure to the end every believer will enter into god's eternal glory in christ if we are in christ now if we have accepted him as our savior we have experienced the saving grace of god And if we are in Christ, then we will also experience the eternal grace of God. Because between the two, we will experience the preserving, maturing grace of God. It is the maturing grace of God that brings us into the eternal grace of God. And we have the maturing grace of God when we experience the saving grace of God. It's this glorious truth that that Peter uses to close out the body of his letter. And as he does that, then he he ends with a final doxology, a final praise to God. To God, to Him, be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Dominion is a word that refers to a, a controlling power or authority. God's dominion is forever and ever. God is and God will be the controlling power and the authority forever and ever. Think about that. Think about that. When, when we suffer, one of the foremost temptations that, that we start to, to have is that we think in some small fashion, God's lost control. Now, theologically, I know we're all good theologians here, we would assert that the God is in control of all things. But in the inner closet of our mind, that, that place where nobody else can see, we start to wonder, is that really true? If it's true that God is in control of all things, then, then how did my situation slip past him? He must have missed what's happening in my life because there is no way God would want this to happen to me. God certainly did not allow this And a crack starts to form in our minds between what we know about God, according to our theology, and what we have experienced about God in our lives. We have this little crack that forms. I I fear that sometimes it's possible that in our churches we actually aid this crack forming by by glossing over our pain and our suffering so much that, that we help widen this inner mental crack after all, most of the songs that we sing are happy songs, aren't they? The prayers that we pray, though they're in worship, they're upbeat prayers. The, the testimonies that we share are about victories that we have. We don't hear others talking about the pain and suffering that, that we feel. We, we some, certainly don't see others in the church expressing the kind of doubts that we have in that inner closet of our mind. When we think, how did this suffering get past God? Friends, we all have these experiences. Some of us suffer more than others, but none of us are are immune. Believers never have been and never will be immune from suffering in this life. A simple reading of the Psalms reveals as much. The Psalms are filled with doubts and with pain. But the Psalms are also filled with confidence. Because God is the controlling power and authority in this universe. Dominion is His forever and ever. Inevitably that the psalmists all end with confidence in God. Peter ends with confidence in God. We must do the same. We must practice confidence in God even when we cannot connect the dots of our circumstances, when we cannot form a picture of how these dots connect, what we know about God and what we're experiencing with God. How does this connect? Rather, when these questions start bouncing around our minds, we must renew our commitment to trusting in God's promises. God has dominion. God's given us the tools, the, the means, if you will, to, to make it through the circumstances that brings into our lives. He hasn't left us without what we need. Even when it comes to suffering for our faith, he gives us the tools. The, the tools that he gives us that we need are the exhortations given in this letter in, in the other books of the Bible. When we start to doubt that God is in control, we need to remember that God is so much in control that doing the very things that he's told us to do, even when it seems like those things will cause our problems get worse, God is so much in control that when we do those things, we will endure our suffering until we reach eternal glory. That is Christian confidence. Care is required to live as Christians within a world of suffering. We must practice Christian confidence. As I said, I learned back in high school to to be cautious when I entered the sheep pen to, to give them their oats. Grace learned in nursing school to be cautious when she was administering drugs. As new parents, we learned to be careful as we laid our children in the crib when they were asleep. Well, this morning we've learned that care is also required to live as Christians within a world of suffering. Care is required to live as Christians within a world of suffering. Now, to exercise that care that we need to have, Peter has concluded the the body of his letter with four things that we must practice. To have the care that we need to live as Christians within this world of suffering. One, we must practice Christian vigilance. Two, we must practice Christian resistance. Three, we must practice Christian anticipation. And four, we must practice Christian confidence. These four things enable us to live cautious Christian lives within a world of suffering. That's our world. It's a world that brings suffering. We have suffering from all kinds of infirmities in our bodies. We have suffering from the brokenness of sin in our world. And we have suffering that can come because we name the name of Christ. The question that we need to ask this morning is, are we living in a cautious manner for the cause of Christ? Care is required to live as Christians within a world of suffering. Let's pray. Father, our prayer this morning is that you would indeed help us to live rightly in this world of suffering. May we be able to exercise the the care that we need as Christians that will display our faith, that will allow us to see the glorious work of your, your grace within us. Father, I do pray if there is someone here this morning that does not know Jesus Christ as Savior, that has never experienced the saving grace that is offered freely, that gives the foundation for living within this world of suffering that comes, I pray today would be the day that you would draw that soul to yourself. Father, I pray for the rest of us that you would help us to examine our lives, to see where we need to increase our caution, to live more carefully, so that we can have the fully joy-filled lives that we should have as we magnify our Savior, Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.